This is Carol Steves, and you're listening to Reality Ranch Podcast. Today is Friday, August 14th, 2020. Today's podcast turned out to be an extra long one, and I decided not to split it up into two episodes. Though I um, did spend extra time on my interview with um, Chris and Francisco, I still would like to read something from Billy's works, as this has become a, a tradition that I do on every one of my shows. So this week, I'm going to read um, from the little flip chart, the 77 meditations taken from meditation from clear visibility, high and highest meditation, pages 239 and 240. And I'm pretty sure this uh, little, yes, this little uh, flip uh, booklet of the 77 meditations was, was put together and published by Figu Landis Group Canada. So if you want a copy of this, you can get it from uh, their website, ca.figu.org. Meditation from Clear Visibility, High and Highest Meditation by Billy. Meditative Basis for the Positive Consciousness Attitude. The true richness of the meditated basis for a positive consciousness attitude rests in the true insight and the true knowledge, experience, living experience, that the omnipotence of one's own thoughts and feelings steer all functions and processes of the entire life. Opposed to this stands the blind belief in an all-directing God and in calamity-averting amulets, magical talismans, cult activities, and hallowed cult shrines holy rituals and relics, consecrated shrines, hallowed and holy water, holy hosts and wines, etc. Knowledge is in its essence wisdom and positive neutral might. Belief, by contrast, is a lack of understanding and a phenomenon of thought-feeling based as well as psychic consciousness-based misdirected mechanisms without cognizance with regards to the creational, spiritual, and creational natural laws and recommendations. Hence, it clearly and definitively follows that cognition, knowledge, practical experience, living experience, and wisdom are alone the true factors which inhibit real values and are evolutively effective and form a positive basis for a positive consciousness attitude, while in contrast to this, the belief is a way to the destruction and devolution and leads to the delusion and confusion as well as into a disturbed consciousness attitude. A meditative basis for a positive consciousness attitude consists in the value that the consciousness is steered by corresponding meditative thoughts and feelings and is consciously formed. The meditative form as well consists therein that certain thoughts are consciously cultivated again and again 
through which corresponding feelings are released, which manifest themselves beneficially and in a positive, equalized manner in the psyche and form. This whereby the consciousness is stimulated in the same wise and a consciousness-positive consciousness attitude emerges. The meditative thoughts and feelings are thereby cultivated again and again by thinking or muttering several times daily, three to four times, a specific sentence for about five minutes and practicing conscious attentiveness on that which is spoken. The one in the same sentence can find application for a single day or for several days as required or for as long and often until the content of the sentence has become a conscious matter of course. Thereby, the meditative basis for a positive consciousness attitude can become a long process which can claim several months or even a whole year. Naturally, it does not occur in the manner that for this entire time, only a single sentence finds application for the meditative basis of the consciousness attitude because truthfully, the entire allotted work of the points for meditative use comprise of 77, which little by little must find use usage in order to achieve the entire extent of the goal. With these 77 points, the aim is therefore to learn to trust one's own potential, as well as to get rid of anxiety, to live with oneself in peace and enjoy the life in abundance. Also integrated is one's own elevation as well as the health and vitality, the finding of creative solutions to problems, the right cultivation of thoughts, and the successful life. The hereto necessary 77 steps of the meditative cultivation of thoughts and feelings are divided into the following sentences. And I will only read the first one today. Number one, in order to live in today's world, I must be strong and develop tenacity with regard to my consciousness and my intellect. My guests today are Francisco Valete and Christopher Locke. Francisco is from Colombia, South America, and also goes by the alias Raul Zahi. Francisco is a civil engineer, writer, painter, illustrator, UFO investigator, and amateur astronomer, among many other accomplishments and activities, including teaching at university. He, along with a team of volunteers, is responsible for the creation of the Billy for Kids webpage. For more than seven years, Francisco has been conducting scientific investigations concerning the evidence in the Billy Meyer case. Christopher Locke is from England, but has lived most of his life in Osaka, Japan, where he teaches at university as an English educator in the areas of oral communication, presentations, academic writing, and English literature. 
Chris also holds an honorary fellowship as an architectural illustrator and holds various degrees or equivalents in model making, photography, and fine art. In his words, Chris is an independent investigator who sees an undeniable amount of truth in the Meyer material. Both of these men are so accomplished that it would take a whole show just to explain everything they have done. Sorry, guys, if I've left some things out. Please join me now in my conversation with Francisco Velate and Christopher Locke. I contacted you two because I want to discuss the new book you've written uh, entitled They Are Here, Compelling Evidence of Extraterrestrial Ships Present on Earth. So this is the first time that you and uh, Francisco have spoken by voice. Yeah, we've only ever communicated by emails and Dropbox. Oh wow! <laughs> For I don't know how many years. Yeah, um, that's amazing. So um, you know, this is a first in uh, a few ways. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that too. Yeah. We could have done it, of course. Yeah, we could have. We talked about getting together on Zoom, but we never did. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, well I guess we're both writers, you know, and and because what we're writing and researching, you know, it's it's better to take your time, you know, think yes. about everything and. You can't do that so well when it's live, you know. When I talk live, I mean, you tend to just go off, you know, and it's easy to make a few errors or when you write, you usually check it and check everything's right before you send it. So, um, yeah, and that was important with our work. So that's the way we've always done it, you know. I see. Well, I can understand that. But no, I had no idea that you... That yeah. you guys uh, had never spoken, uh, well, heard each other's voices. Plus, we're on different time scales, of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yes, you, yes, yeah, I know. it's kind of <laughs> difficult to contact. Yeah. What time is it there where you are, Carol? It's uh, four oh nine a.m. Wow, in the morning, yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you for taking oh, the absolutely. trouble to contact at this time. So I wonder what time it is for Francisco. I think he said it was in the evening. No, no, early in the morning, like 6 a.m. So I don't know. Oh, where wow. Yeah. So um, tell me uh, while we're waiting for uh, Francisco to come back on, mm-hmm. how did you end up in Japan? Uh, well, it goes back a long way because I've been here most of my life. Oh, so okay. when, I was in, when I was in university, uh, studying architecture, um, mm-hmm. Every weekend, I used to go to the Thai temple in um, Wimbledon, in London. I was in um, Kingston, uh, Kingston University. And uh, I made friends with the monks there, the abbots uh, and everybody. And um, I used to go there all the time. You know, and I was studying Buddhism as well at that time. I guess at that time, I was a Buddhist. Uh, I kind of adopted it, you know. Um, and most of my friends were actually Thai. Um, and I was thinking of going to Thailand, of course. Um, the Thai temples, as you probably know, in Thailand, from Thailand, if you've been there, there are very sociable kind of places. You know, everybody goes there. So at the weekends, it was full of 
people, you know, and I'd help out in the kitchen or, or wherever. And uh, they, were, they had a beautiful garden there in the big premises they had. And um, there I also met my first Japanese friend, um, Japanese young lady. And um, there were a kind of gang of us, you, you know, we got the nickname Asian Gang Plus One from the uh, number one secretary to Andrew Young at the time. Um, his adopted daughter was going to the temple too, and we were good friends. And so there was a group of us, you know, there was, she was Laotian and Thai, and uh, there were Thai people, and there were a couple from the Philippines, there was a guy from Hong Kong, and then the young lady um, uh, from Japan, Michio. And um, gradually, uh, yeah, everyone was kind of finishing, you know. Michio's time was finishing. She had to go back to Japan. She didn't want to go back, so her brother came over um, and there were orders from, her fa from his father to bring her back. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so she went back to Japan. Um, but we got on really well. You know, and I was fascinated by um, her family details. You know, her father um, had competed internationally in um, karate. He was an expert in shiatsu, uh, moxibustion, um, Chinese herbal medicine, and he had his own health food shop. You know, and I was a health fanatic at the time, and I was also. Um, this was also shortly after Bruce Lee had died, and oh, I see. I'd introduced him and his movies to all my university friends. You know, they all thought <laughs> I was nuts for being sort of crazy on Asia. You know, um, <laughs> so that's how my interest in Asia began. And I realised uh, in my final year at university, that, well, even before then, that uh, when I finished, I would be going to Asia, and I would live somewhere in Asia, probably Thailand, because I, most of my friends were Thai and had some very good connections there. Um, but my family moving to Australia, and my younger brother was just about to get married there, so I have to go there too. Um, but also Michio is in Japan. Well, I've got to go and see the, her father. Yeah, it's incredible family situation. And uh, we kept up with letter writing for about a, a year and a half um, regularly, and then... Uh, when I left England, I bought tickets for uh, all of those countries and decided to visit them all. And I thought, well, I'll stay in which one of them, you know. And um, long story short, it ended up being Japan, but it was a rather long story. You know, the first time I came here, I didn't like it, but um, I'd messed up with my ticket and I couldn't get out. So I was stuck here for <laughs> six months. <laughs> and, uh, where, where in Japan? Because I have actually. Oh, Osaka. Okay. Yeah, um, and I've been here virtually all the time. I did a year in Kyoto, um, but I came back to Osaka because the work opportunities were better here. Right. Um, and work offers were, were, had more offers here. And I was working actually, um, I started working in, um, I got really sick, um, which is how I lost my Australian permanent residence and couldn't get back to Australia. Um, and I just went to work in a natural foods restaurant in Osaka. The Japanese friend was kind of, he was the head chef there. And um, when I was getting up at five in the morning from the north of Kyoto to travel into Osaka to work there, you know, and I, 
<laughs> this isn't really good, especially because I'm so sick. You know, I was having terrible asthmatic attacks. You know, and um, I thought I've got to move back to Osaka. You know, so I moved back to Osaka, and here I've stayed. You know, and work situation has changed gradually. More and more university work, and from about um, 20 years ago, only university work. So, uh, well, I basically that's on, it. On your name. What does that um, Han FSI mean? Is that, did I say it right? On oh, FSAI, yeah, FSAI. Um, yeah, yeah okay. Well, that's um, the on is honorary. Yeah, so it's an F is fellow. I figured that. F is fellowship or a fellow. Okay. So I'm, that means I'm an honorary fellow of the Society of Architectural Illustrators. Oh, okay. I knew it. From, I see. Um, well, we've got um, Francisco's back on the line, and uh, Francisco, Chris was telling me you guys, or was it you that was telling me that you guys have never spoken by voice before? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and this is quite funny, yes. So uh, yeah, it's very strange. I, I think Chris is an excellent friend of mine, really, one of my best ones. And we've never been talking before. Uh -huh. uh, it's the first time I hear his voice on the on in a computer at the beginning it was really weird weird I, I but right but right now i feel that i he's this is chris <laughs> it's very yeah. funny yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's... <laughs> okay nice to meet you chris. yeah it's good to meet you francisco it's funny hearing your voice too actually a bit different than what i imagined your voice would be <laughs> yeah okay just give me five minutes and you get used to that <laughs> I, I, i'm pretty i'm almost there <laughs> Yeah, that's quite funny, Carol. I, I don't know, but it's, it's funny. Yeah, it's very, very strange. I mean, yes, we've been working together for years. Uh, How long? Uh, maybe years? three years. I don't oh, know. longer than that. Longer than that, Francisco. Yeah, probably five years. Yes. Yeah, more. more. Uh, yes, I think we were working for uh, several years, but I guess uh, the first time was uh, 2011. I don't remember before that because I get interested in, in uh, Billy Major case actually working on that from 2011 after that maybe before that i'm not sure mm. okay. maybe, maybe, uh, you're, maybe you're right francisco my my memory is one of my weak points <laughs> it's, it's why okay. i write you know? <laughs> yes uh, maybe i can explain you maybe i can explain you when i uh okay maybe uh, talk about uh, about a little bit more about myself and yes, how why i'm here right now okay um okay first of all i am part of a big family i mean we have uh, four brothers four sisters so we are eight in total so my live, father I, right now I'm living in Toronto. I oh. born in Bogota, in the capital city of Colombia, okay. in South America. Uh, but I moved recently to Toronto. I'm working here. Um, I'm some kind of immigrant right now to Canada. And it's hard just to be immigrant. I I didn't know that was that hard, but it is hard. Uh, I born in, in, in Bogota um, as part of a family of four brothers and sisters uh, and it was like a brother brotherhood i mean we my my older brother were helping me with uh, my uh, signatures of my assignments of the school mm -hmm. um i feel a strong connection with them actually 
Uh, all my brothers and sisters are, are spread around the world. There are two of them here in Canada, another two in Colombia, one in Costa Rica, another one in Portugal, and another a sister in New Zealand. So if I would like to go around the world, I can be visiting my brothers, <laughs> and we always stay in different places. <laughs> Yes. Uh, okay. Um, since uh, I was very uh, very young, I was very always interested in the space and UFOs and things like that. I remember I was maybe seven years old and I made a, a UFO replica mm -hmm. with a cardboard and glues and everything. Uh, I put windows and a lot of things. I was imagining how was inside that. So I put everything inside and outside, and I was playing with that UFO because I like it so much. Mm -hmm. um, and I started uh, being interested in astronomy when I was 17 years old after I watched uh, a satellite. Um, and I started just looking at the sky at this moment. And, and I, I study civil engineer. But I also made some specialization in systems and recently on change management uh, as a consultant. Um, but when I started astronomy, uh, I was uh, part of the amateur association. I became president of that amateur association in Colombia. Um, and also studied six months uh, astronomy and astrophysics, just a, a course um, conducted by a professional astronomer in Bogota in the observatory that was linked with the National University, where I study civil engineer. Um, but I, I, I always were, were fascinated by, by the, the sky, the stars. Uh, I was watching this, this, the sky at night every uh, all, all the time, whenever I, it was possible. For example, I, I, in some cases, I just climb up on the top of my home, on the ceiling. Uh, because from there I couldn't see better the, the stars. Mm -hmm. So my mother was really scared when she went out for doing <laughs> something on the jar and she saw me on the, <laughs> on the ceiling just watching the star. And she was telling my bro my sister that I was very strange because of that. Yes. <laughs> and, and my fascination for the stars uh, was very high. And in the uh, association, we were constructing telescopes. I built my own telescopes. I know how to build telescopes. I have a couple of them built by myself. Uh, so some kind of, I like to do the things by myself. Um, I prefer to have the experience on first hand, just to uh, testing and trying with something all the time, uh, with everything. Uh, so I constructed my telescopes, and but I also very fascinated about astronautics. I since I was very young, I was making rockets, little rockets, mm -hmm. um, and one of them almost killed me. So that was oh. the end of my career as an as astronaut. Uh, oh, so you I were was, uh, making rockets that you could launch. Sorry, say again? You were making rockets you could actually launch? So they actually combustion. Yeah, yeah, combustion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. not not the water one was with uh, gunpowder, oh, but no. little one, a very little one. So okay. I create my own lab. I made I made uh, my uh, small rockets and I was measure everything. I was putting some scientific work behind that. Uh, actually, the machine that almost killed me is one that I made. Uh, it's like a pendulum with a little rocket, and I put some weight there. 
and the rocket was moving the weight and depending of the amplitude of the of the angle of the pendulum uh, i can measure the the thrust of the rocket i mean how how much they're pushing on um, mm -hmm. the force on the rocket the thrust uh, but i we were in a some in a farm uh, far away from uh, well maybe two hours away from the capital city at night in can you imagine in the middle of the night in a farm uh, that uh, doing some tests with a lot of people and i was uh, working with that machine uh, doing a demonstration in front of everybody okay. and that thing exploded oh, and no. uh, i was maybe a five, 50 50 centimeters away, around two feet away from the rocket when it exploded, mm -hmm. and it hit my head. Oh. Uh, so I was really seriously injured in one eye. Well, actually, not really seriously injured. I, my eye was perfect. It didn't have anything wrong happen to me. But my eye was uh, getting bigger and bigger mm -hmm. until I see nothing. A friend of mine was very scared about that, and because we were planning to do some camping there, the owner of the farm allowed me to stay at one of the house uh, of the guest uh, rooms. And my friend, uh, uh, one friend of mine that was really scared about that, he said, "Oh, I want to stay with Francisco because he, he can need some, something at night, so I want to be just uh, with him all the time." Uh, actually, I couldn't sleep that night. Not because of the accident, because my uh, dear fellow friend is uh, was snoring, snoring <laughs> the whole night. Yeah. <laughs> he don't let, he didn't let me sleep. <laughs> okay, so that 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 was the, the end of my career as a, as, a, as, a, as an astronaut. So I preferred to see this the start from the ground. So I it was more dedicated to astronomy. So I, I started watching this the the start at night and I, a couple of times I saw UFOs. Uh, I said, I this is something that is very common for me i mean watching ufos just a couple of times because i can recognize perfectly every constellation uh, uh shooting stars uh, i have seen eclipse uh, comets uh, maybe all the astronomical uh, events that can be watched by uh, an amateur astronomer i have been watching them mm -hmm. so the sky is uh very easy for me to recognize but a couple of times i have seen ufos okay uh, one of them was uh, was not they're, they're not really spectacular maybe one of them was one uh, little uh, um, spot a bright spot on the sky dancing in the sky doing some movement that I cannot explain not even with a, by a airplane or nothing uh, because it's turning uh, turn do uh, right turns and doing some movement without uh, reducing the speed. So any airplane can do that. So it was actually a UFO for me. It was uh, at night? Yeah, at night, yeah. at night. Okay. And I had my telescope, but I couldn't focus on uh, that because it was moving all the time. But what's really interesting, um, what, what was very curious is that it was moving in a straight line. And I was with uh, another two amateur astronomers watching that. When we say, hey, look at that satellite, as soon as we say that, it came back. 
and I started moving around on the sky. It was like he was hearing us. Yeah. It was very weird. Uh, yes. Interesting. So, he sensed us. He sensed that we were excited to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and I started doing the demonstration on the sky. The other one, I was alone, also doing a observation. The other one, there was a, yes, a similar object that looks at the beginning like a satellite uh, moving on the sky, but then it, it did a right turn. And then it joined another one that was waiting, that looked like an start. But as soon as it, the first one came cross by, they both together were moving. Uh, and then another one, another one, a different object were joining the sky. And at the end, they were moving in a, in a conformation like a V shape, like the birds mm-hmm. do on the sky. Yes. But they were not birds. They were not airplanes, not birds. So that is the second one. Um, and because I was uh, watching the sky all the time and being an amateur astronomer, uh, some people that see saw something strange on the sky, I mean, they, when they saw a UFO or something like that, they came to me to tell me what happened and tried to ask for an explanation from me. Right. Uh, yeah. And... I, I was uh, living in, working in a north part of Colombia in a coal mine. It was a very isolated area. So UFOs there, they were very common. Uh, one of them was a very curious one. Is um, the lieutenant of the police in that area. And he was the authority, the highest rank on the police. Uh, he was in charge of the security on that region. Uh, but a friend of my, mine came to talk to me and say, hey, the lieutenant of the police uh, saw something on the sky, a UFO the other night, but he cannot sleep. He's very confused about that. He's feeling very bad. And maybe if you talk with him, probably he could be feeling better. So why don't you talk with him? So I went to talk with the lieutenant. He was uh, in really bad condition. I think his psyche was altered. Alter, he, he didn't understand what he saw. Uh, what happened is that he was sleeping at night at around 5 a.m. Um, somebody knocked the door and said, hey, uh, my lieutenant, uh, there's something on the sky. And he came out. I imagine he was sleeping and just wake up and saw the sky. And they saw a bright spot of light on the sky. And he said, oh, this is an airplane for uh, drug dealers. So we will be captured them. So they called uh, to a major city in the north part of uh, that area called Riohacha. In that place, they are a big airport and they have a radar. So they were uh, monitoring, uh, scanning the sky. Mm-hmm. And they told him, no, there's nothing flying right now here around. Nothing. Did he I, we say don't we see... think it's drug dealers? Is that what you said? Yes, drug dealers. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, sorry, probably. <laughs> oh, that's okay, Carol. You can stop me at any time. No, My that's... English is very funny sometimes. That's Maybe okay, I say but something. I thought that's what you said, and I went, really? Yeah, drug dealers. Yeah, yeah. That's also... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that. Sure. Uh, so, so the, there's nothing. There was nothing on the sky, and they okay. and he said, okay, okay, my boys, let let's come and catch this, the bad guys. So they took uh, a truck uh, filled with full with uh, policemen. Mm-hmm. All all of them were armed, and they were driving to, towards the north. 
but at some point of time they couldn't drive more because if they continue they will leave the bright object that was in the sky so they have stopped the vehicle i imagine it's around five four or five a.m mm -hmm. in the morning mm -hmm. and they went out and they saw a bright uh, spot of light uh, in a circular object uh, doing some pattern of lights the very curious one so at this moment the lieutenant and the policeman noticed that it was not an airplane it's not a common object so they were very scared and they just go back to the truck and went back to the main station uh, very scared uh, it was that just that uh, after uh, a while the that bright object just disappeared a normal UFO uh, appearance. But the lieutenant was feeling very bad. I was uh, talking with him and explaining that it was very common. Uh, even kids were watching UFOs, uh, just flying above them mm -hmm. once in a while. So once he understand that was very common, and I explained many things about the, the extraterrestrials, uh, and he was asking me a lot of questions. And he told me, I want to know everything about that because one day the lieutenant told me one day they will be landing and say okay take me to your uh, authorities and they are co being calling me so i don't know how to deal with them <laughs> so he was thinking that that was going to happen <laughs> so he was really scared about that so he wants to know everything about them just in case he has to face them one day Oh, okay. Interesting. And did you already know about um, the the mission by then, or was this just based on other information that you had about extraterrestrials? Yeah, because well, um, I always watching uh, UFOs. It's always mm -hmm. uh, people talking about that, and mm -hmm. I also been talking with uh, actually four people now that had been. Uh, talking with extraterrestrial people. There was a, a, a very interesting case in Colombia, uh, a guy called Luis Roberto Rodriguez. He was a farm uh, worker. He was milking his uh, landlord, uh, the, 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 the cows, uh, milking the cows mm -hmm. at the morning. And he was abducted by uh, ETs. Uh, it's a very interesting story, long story. Uh, but I was talking with him. He was at, at my home. And for curious things, he, he ended up in my home at there, at that area when I was living. And also I was talk, talking with Sixto Paz and Billy Major and, and other uh, uh, person. Uh, uh, last name is Thompson, uh, that is, is living in United States. So it's very curious I, i've never been behind the ufos i mean it's like the ufos are behind me i mean the, the cases are coming to me i I'm, I'm never been in ufo seminars or just watching the sky just to see a ufo uh, no right. not like that so people just talk, come to me and say oh this is happening uh, what do you think about that so maybe uh, billy mayer came uh, at the beginning i saw his videos uh, I mean, in 2011, 2010, mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, taking a second look at his videos. And it was for some reason, I was very motivated to look at that. And I started to study everything about him in more detail. And I decided to create a web page, uh, I mean, a YouTube, YouTube channel. So I was translating Billy Major uh, 
materials in uh, my YouTube channel into Spanish. Okay. Because I want everybody to know in the okay. Spanish community, know a little bit more about that. Mm, yes, uh, that's uh, my the beginning with him. Then I um, contacted them uh, by email um, and I suggest to do a web page for the kids, for the children. So I created the Believe for Kids oh, web page. Oh, that's you? I didn't realize yeah, that's that. Me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was oh. the webmaster. <laughs> so I did all the animation. I, I found a, a lot of uh, people around the world helping me in different places. So uh, it's very interesting that we could uh, do the page in different languages. Right now we have 11 languages on that page. Yes, it's I, it's very, very nice. Cool. English. German. So I met people from different places uh, around the world. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the, uh, Billy just uh, support the idea. Yes. So he said, just go ahead. It, uh, through Christian Perner, we were uh, exchanging information. Uh, and when I went to Switzerland, um, we wanted to interview him. Uh, so I, I asked my, my son and, and nephew and uh, kids around me uh, to send me questions to ask Billy. Uh, we received questions from different places. Uh, so we were asking him a question in an interview. Uh, you may see that interview in YouTube. It's Christian Ferner is asking him the questions in German. The interview is in German, but it's translated to different languages as well. Well, I have. Uh, one of the questions was from one of my sons. <laughs> oh really? Yes, the one about oh. Yellowstone Park. Uh, yes, Yellowstone, that one. The volcano was going to blow. That oh. was my youngest son's question. <laughs> That's amazing, Carol. I, I didn't know that. No, I didn't. Need, I didn't realize. What a coincidence! Uh -huh. Yeah, the Yellowstone one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's great. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so so I did that, that one. And, and then I um, started making some more investigations about the the wedding KUFO, the uh, Pendulum UFO, and recently the Hasselbold UFO. And um, at some point of time, uh, I met, uh, I met uh, Chris, and he mm -hmm. was helping me a lot on the photography part and photography, and he had good sense of uh, proportions. On, on, on in a photograph, he sees something that normally some normal person don't look at that and right. see that. So he sees uh, perfectly all the different uh, angles and uh, different uh, depth of fields, things like that. You know, photography uh, things. So he, he it was very useful. And so I asked Chris uh, the first time I think was uh, just to look at the pendulum UFO. Mm -hmm. Him and Dyson was uh, checking my first investigation on the pendulum UFO and they made excellent contribution and we uh, just uh, end up with a good uh, document at the end. So basically that is what I've been uh, doing and how I've been involved with uh, Billy May. I see and Chris? Yeah. Um, tell me how you found out about uh, Billy. Yeah okay well maybe I should also um introduce myself a bit like Francisco has and show yes. how yes. because we're very kind of different yeah like as you've noted Francisco is very much on the practical side he makes things tests things um, I on the other hand since my early childhood have been fascinated by visual imagery um, 
yeah, when I was nine years old, I would collect cigarette cards and picture badges and put them all over my sweater. You know, any pictures, I would always look at them and, you know, fascinated always by visual imagery, mm-hmm. which, of course, led to my interest in art. I studied art at art school and also photography. Um, so, you know, these are my interest here is the visual imagery. You know, I've always been most interested with Billy in terms of his photographs, you know, and what we actually have there. And um, one thing that I don't even know whether I've mentioned this to Francisco, and certainly I don't think I've mentioned it to any of the um, figure connection people. Um, I actually have a PhD from a non-accredited university in semiotics which um, in my case relates to um, visual imagery mostly. You know, semiotics began with study of language, where you're looking at um, usage and meaning of symbols and signs in language and culture. Um, you know, Southsea began that as a study of language, but um, in Western Europe, and for me, and, and in England, um, the interest is more pictorial and looking at images and their effect, you know, you know, the effect of various images put together, what you're actually seeing and their effect upon the viewer as well. Um, so there's a bit of psychology involved too. And my interest also went into, um, because I sometimes see the future and have dreams and visions of the future, especially around about the year 2000, I was getting many, many, you know, um, I became interested in um, that kind of um, semiotics. So there's a whole area of psychology where you're looking at dreams and dream images and what these actually signify. Um, So I was looking at visions um, and I actually coined the term visionary semiotics, which is looking at the images seen in dreams and visions that represents something of the future or signifies something of the future and trying to decode that, which is extraordinarily difficult. Yes, there's, so many, there's so many different levels of, um, of interpretation and signification, you know, and an error anyway gets compounded, you know. Um, so in a way, it has to be very um, questioning in this area and field, you know. Um, this interest actually came to me, it really reached a head, um, when I looked at some of the Wingmakers paintings, um, and that triggered, I realized what I was doing then was tuning into visionary semiotics. And um, that's when I, I studied, I just went crazy on it, you know. Um, from about um, 1999, for about uh, three or four years, I suppose, and published a few papers on. Uh, imagery and I did one on um, visionary semiotics which I published at uh, a junior college associated with Osaka University of Arts and uh, a couple of papers I published in university, uh, Osaka University of Arts um, on the uh, visual imagery within, within the paintings, uh, uh, what the images signify um, and the message that they're giving because the painter, the artist, wasn't talking about them. He wants to remain kind of anonymous or incognito, you know, just let the message go out there as it is, you know. Uh, a bit like Billy, you know, he doesn't want anything to concentrate on the personality. 
Right. Um, we know his name's James, you know, but other than that, we don't really know much about him. Um, and um, so that was really my getting really interested into um, visionary semiotics. And I'd like to actually study more on that, you know. If I had time, I'd like to go to a university somewhere and, um, and do a PhD in, in semiotics again, you know, um, on my own particular field. Um, so that was how, you know, Francisco and I are a bit different. I'm much more on the visual imagery side, you know. And even when I was doing architecture, um, I did a bit of model making. Still, I was mostly it was drawing, sketching. Uh, I've always been interested and fascinated with the visual image and what it's conveying and what you're actually seeing there, you know, and analyzing it. Um, so that's really where I come from in that work. And as to when I first became interested in Billy's work, I, I really can't remember. Um, a big one um, was around about 1984 when I came back from Korea with a German friend of mine and we, we went into the local bookshop here in Osaka. And there was Wendell Stevens' um, book on the shelf there. Um, uh, UFO, what's it? Uh, the preliminary investigation, UFO mm -hmm. contact from the Pleiades. And the book was facing out, you know, so you can see the actual photo, you know. And I looked up there and I said to my friend, well, look at that. That would be great to have that book. You know, he said, do you want it, Chris? I said, well, yeah, it looks great, doesn't it? You know, it was a nice photo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my interest in imagery, you know, I hadn't yes. seen any good um, UFO photos, you know. Um, and he said, I'll get it for you. you know? And he bought it for me and gave it to oh, me nice. as a present, you know. Uh -huh. And I read that. And, of course, that was fascinating, yeah, of course. Um, so then I, since then I was definitely interested in Billy. But, you know, it was so difficult finding out any information on, from Billy at that time, 1984. Almost right, nothing right. was printed in English. Um, I did have connections in the new age field at that point. You know, I knew a good friend, Japanese friend of mine was putting on new age seminars in Osaka. And um, you know, all these guys from America would come over and give these seminars. And you know, because my friend was putting them on, he'd invite me along and I'd help him and insist him and get to see them all for free, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't cover much of Myers material, you know, they were doing their own thing with it, you know, yeah. <laughs> as we know. Um, but I guess about the year 2000, yeah, when I, I um, started my work in the um, visionary semiotics and uh, 2001, September 17th, uh, I experienced uh, what they call Saturday, yeah. Um, which is when all the energies pour through the body and go into the brain and transform your consciousness and you never go back, you know. And this was um, just after I finished work on one of those paintings, decoding the imagery there. That was actually Chamber 6 painting of uh, wingmakers at wingmakers.com if anybody's interested. Okay. Um, Did you say wingmakers.com? Wingmakers, yeah. W-I-N-G. Okay. M-A-K-E-R-S, wingmakers.com. Okay, okay. And if you go to um, 
I think it's um, content, this sort of slash content slash paintings. And scroll down to all the paintings are there, there are about 24 main ones. If you scroll down to the bottom of that page, there are three of my papers that I had published here in Japan. There are free downloads, you can read those. And um, that really got me started. And also, um, that was also the beginning of a whole series of visions and things I had. And, and that was um, how I also got into contact with Michael Horn, yeah? because um, one of my visions was the um, the power mega tsunami. You know, I, I saw this in a dream, and it was, it was amazing. You know, it was it was what, Chris? It was the La Palma what? mega tsunami. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, from yes. from um, the uh, it's it's a long story. You, you know, I mean, I, I could talk about it at length if you want. You know, but I actually um, I think I wrote a paper on it in the end. It's, there's more available on that in Japanese than English. You know, a Japanese friend, right? Um, was translating all my work into Japanese and putting it on online here at that time. Um, so I saw that and um, then I, I found out that, um, that Billy had also written about this. You know. mm -hmm. And when I looked at that, I said, oh, wow, yeah. And that's exactly what I, I saw, you know, and um, then I contacted, that's when I contacted Michael, or Michael contacted me. You know, I said, yeah, this is dead right, you know, Michael. You know, I've seen this, you know. Yes. And, and I mentioned it in one of the papers I had published here, which was, um, I was also looking at um, Nostradamus, because Nostradamus also prophesies this. Um, I actually know the quatrain. You know, people say you can't know what he's prophesied before it happens. Well, we can that one. I actually got it, you know. And it's there. It's pretty, pretty clear, obviously. But um, some American guys stole my material and put it on their own website. Oh. Um, but it's available in Japanese, but I never put it up in English. You know, I've, um, I've been very inactive you know, in promoting myself, you know, in, in this. I've just been too busy working at university all the time. Um, but after that, and, and Michael contacted me, it was very strange, you know, at that time, just as I made contact with Michael, I was getting visions four or five a day, you know, and, and I tell Michael about them, and he's getting blown away by it all, you know. Uh -huh. And um, it was very curious, you, you know, there were, I mean, I was seeing all these tsunami things, I saw the 2004 tsunami before it happened, and I thought I was in that, you know, but it didn't really make sense because I could see the place wasn't any place I'd been to and right. I had no plans to go to it. You know, it was clearly um, kind of Indonesia, kind of somewhere on the coast, you know, flat area. And um, I don't know, there are many, there are many sides to that, you know, many areas and that goes into the semiotics imagery as well, you know, because, um, in that vision, I was actually there with my brother, and we were running and trying to escape from the tsunami, and we couldn't. And we got into this one place on about the second or third floor, which is about as high up as you could get. And the whole thing just caved in in a load of mud, and we died, you know. Mm -hmm. And I woke up with that. And, oh, you know, it's kind of shocking, you know. But um, 
but I realized then that it was it was saying something to me, you know, about um, people generally, you know, that the people who died in that tsunami, for example, um, they're just the same as me and my brother, you know. You know, they're, they're people's brothers and, and children, you know, and, yes. and essentially they're mine as well. You know, there's no difference. You know, we're all in this together. Um, and I've experienced that with a lot of my dreams. I went to the Indian one, yeah, and, and um, was it Katrina? I saw that many times before it happened. In fact, I was getting bored with them. It was happening on a regular basis, you know. I was thinking, show me something different you know, every night, you know. <laughs> and... Um, and then it showed me this terrible one in India where, again, this filthy mud kind of thing just came up and I couldn't escape it and it just killed me, you know. And I knew then that people were going to die from this, you know. And and, and they did. About a thousand people died in um, terrible storms there that year in, in India. And then there, were, there was a school in China that people would die. Yeah, I was seeing all these things, you know, and... Um, it, of course, got me very interested in um, decoding precisely what these images mean, you know, um, and why we see those particular images. Because, you know, of course, they're coming through our mind and we're interpreting it, of course, you know. Yes. yes. And then when you write it again, this is another level of reinterpretation. You know? um, so, you know, that's... Um, Basically, how I got into Billy's information, and it just became more and more, you know, um, more and more of his stuff started coming out, and uh, I got interested in that. And another reason I was interested in it is the satori I experienced, in which they also call the mythic death. You know, Joseph Campbell calls it the mythic death. Um, if you hold to that consciousness, you realize something about death, you know, and it's. I realized that you don't survive it, you know, the personality is gone at death, you know. Yes. Uh, which was was new to me because, you know, with the new age teachings, it's really different. Oh, oh, you, you're still there when you die, you know. <laughs> you're yeah. waiting to come in again, you know. But I realized that's not it, you know. Yes. You're gone. It's all over, mm -hmm. you know, because essentially it is even in that experience. It's, it's kind of over, except you've still got your DNA and your genome, so it's still working, you know. Um, and Billy and James, the guy in um, you know, the We Makers Information, are the only two sources that are clear about this. You know? They say, when you die, you're gone, you know? Um, which, of course, is exactly what the Buddha said, you know, you would die. You know? Although he wasn't clear about what actually reincarnates, you know, or incarnates. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, this got me very, very much interested in, in Billy's material because... Uh, um, and again, in the wing makers, but Billy goes into it a bit more detail, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, so I began to get a bit more interested in Billy's material than the wing makers um, post 2005, 2006. You know, um, up until that time, I was probably a lot more into the wing makers information and, and materials. Um, Partly for the artistic content, and I was working on that. And there's still a paper in there that I'm working on now, which I want to publish an extra one because it's very interesting and um, very revealing too. Um, and some of it, I find, relates to Billy's material, you know. And I, 
but it's difficult talking about that, especially on the figure website. I can't do that. You know, they don't accept that kind of level of discussion. You know, it's just got to be about Billy's material. And I, I respect that, you know, and it's difficult anyway. It's confusing for most people. Yeah. Um, because there are differences in, in, in the terms, you know, just, there's a lot of correlation. That's all. Just leave it at that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Billy keeps uh, bringing out new material and also he's got the prophecies and predictions. And, uh, this of course is a special interest for me with my interest in, uh, what I term visionary semiotics. Um, and um, he's defining the difference between predictions and, and prophecies, yeah. um, which I had to have to agree with is, um, is the best way of, of looking at it, you know, if you're objective. Um, yeah, I don't know. So um, is that, I too have had my own UFO sightings, you know, and like Francisco when I was young, um, it was a book that I had on, um, I'm not sure whether it was an encyclopedia or a space book, but I just remember the one book I had when I was, this would be about 10, I suppose, or 11, had a picture of our solar system. And I would just turn to this and stare at it <laughs> night after night you know mm-hmm. it was the one picture which fascinated me you know our solar system and space you know um and when i was out one night with my father <laughs> a bit like billy yeah? um we were walking this would have been in the 1950s um, i think late 50s or early 60s um when was the first satellite going up it was about that time, you know, and um, I was just a young kid, you know, with my father. I'm not sure whether my older brother was with us. And we were in our front garden and we looked up at the sky and we saw this light going across the sky, you know. And um, my father said, oh, look, there's one of those satellites, Chris. You know? And I looked at him and said, oh, yeah, satellite going across the sky, you know. And about a week later, you know, um, he said, you know that satellite going across the sky? I said, they said, there's something strange there. It was going the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. all, all our satellites go one way. Yeah, when the first, first satellites went up, they all flew one way. And I can't, I'm not as scientific as Raal, you know, or Francisco. Um, I wasn't sure whether they go from east to west or west to east, you know, but the one we saw was going the other way, apparently. So that kind of piqued my interest, you know. And then uh, later, when I was about 20 in England, just before I left, no, just before I went to university in, uh, in London, in my hometown of uh, Reading, uh, I was sitting on a hill with uh, a friend. It was just about Christmas, Christmas Eve, I think. And um, I was sitting on this hill with this um, young lady who was, sometimes she'd call me. She was having problems at home you know she come from a very broken family and we meet and talk and stuff okay. you know and um we're sitting on this bench talking one evening and i saw another one of these satellites going across the sky oh, there's a satellite again you know and as with francisco it stopped you know and then it went back and i said hey, wait wait look look it's going back <laughs> again it can't that can't be a satellite you know and then um then it stopped again and then suddenly there were 
two lights and it went across the sky again and then it blinked into a three and they started going left and right and then the one on the far left or far right would go on and off as though they were kind of on an object which was turning around although i couldn't see any object and then they would kind of would, as though they were coming closer the space between the three lights would become bigger you know and then get smaller and we were going crazy you know saying look, look, what is these are ufos or something you know i'm not sure what we called them back then i think we were still mm -hmm. i think they were called ufos then but you know we were getting very excited and we actually ran down the hill to try and in a vain attempt to try and get beneath where they were but they were too far away you know yeah um we found a policeman eventually at the bottom of the road and told him and he said yeah there have been a few reports of, of this you know <laughs> recently <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, not much he could do though no know. no yes um but uh, and that was all we could do and now uh, I mean, that was the end of that and um then here in japan uh 1996 um when hail bop came we um i'd made friends with um a guy here, a Japanese man, um, Takayuki Wada, who had become a little famous as a, a UFO photographer in, in Osaka. He had some exhibitions of his photographs and stuff. Um, he was a journalist, and um, I had made friends with him. And we went up to um, uh, the top of um, Mount Ikoma, which is the highest mountain kind of surrounding in the behind the suburbs of Osaka, if you like. Um, we went up there uh, to set up our cameras to photograph Hale Bop. And um, there were four of us went up there. It was me, him, and two of his friends. We, we knew an, an architect friend who had a uh, like a second home up there, which we kind of go and take care of and look after every now and then, you know. So that was kind of our base up there. And we set up our cameras um, to where we knew where Hell Bob was going to appear. So we set our cameras up there to take photographs of it. And we we're just waiting. And um, as we waited, the sky started going the dark blue, you know, that it does 15 minutes after the sun sets. It was a deep uh, blue sky. There was no clouds in the sky whatsoever. And we were just looking around, waiting for it to, to appear, you know, just about to start appearing. And I happened to just glance up right above my head. And uh, right above us was this incredibly bright, golden, pulsating light, flashing like crazy. And I looked up and I said, wow look at that you know and we all looked up we were all just kind of dumbstruck you know looking at this thing like, what the hell is that and we said cameras cameras you know <laughs> so we pulled our cameras off of their tripods but then we looked up and it's gone you know? <laughs> so um we didn't get any pictures of it but we all saw it and um that was very interesting you know eventually we got a few pictures of hail bop but that's all we had of that um, so we didn't have any actual photographic evidence of that, which was a shame. So those are my three kind of UFO sightings. But my friend had many more up there. You know, he had a number of sightings in Inicom were strange, small things as well. Um, more like these um, 
what does Maya call them? These um, little devices that fly around. Oh, the telemeter discs? That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, something like that, but a bit different. He seen, and he often would take photographs where he would see nothing, and on the film there's all kinds of stuff. You know? um, and he actually had a very successful exhibition when they opened the World Trade Center here in Osaka. Um, it was his UFO exhibition, you know, and he was an editor of a newspaper at the time. And, uh, you know, I helped him with, with um, not with the exhibition, but uh, he helped me actually get some photographs published in his newspaper. And about 50,000 people attended that opening of that um, World Trade Center here, his UFO exhibition. Uh, there loads, and there were some Billy Meyer UFOs there as well, you know, um, folders and files of um, freedom of information files and everything. It was a very big exhibition. You know, Japan had been, um, I think Japan had been the most open country in terms of communication of UFOs through the 80s and 90s. You know, when um, Junichi Yaoi came back after his interview with Maya and put the program on Japanese national TV, uh, it was a big hit, you know, and every weekend there were the one or two hour specials of, of Yao-san's UFO special. All of the information that they couldn't get published in America, he was putting on to the national TV in Japan, you know, and I recorded them all. I mean, it was a fantastic time, you know. Um, so that got me really interested in, again, the whole subject of UFOs, and it wasn't only Billy, I mean, he was getting information. Yawasan, of course, was getting information from you know, all the other um, sources or alleged sources too, you know, but um, yeah, for so me, he always kind of went back to Billy, you know, because yeah, uh, yeah. he had the best kind of evidence of war and certainly the best photographs, you know. Yeah, and I think um, that's what all of us have, real, you know, realized that. that yeah. Yeah. So you guys, um, I want to talk about your book. Um, your second, this is your second book, right? Because the first one is a book for young scientists. Yes. To, yes. Um, That's correct. to analyze and UFOs, which I didn't know you'd written. I went on uh, Amazon to look to see if you had any other books. And I saw that and I saw Francisco that you've also written some other books and so what made you guys decide to do this, write this book? <laughs> um, oh, okay, I'm not really sure. Okay, it, it was a very interesting uh, investigation that we were doing uh, about the pendulum UFO and the wedding cake UFO. Mm -hmm. So also we did some work on the energy chips. So we decided just to uh, um, just create a book that... Uh, having everything there in one place and expanding that. It was the first uh, idea. And we start writing down that one. Um, at the beginning, the book was uh, longer. I mean, it's having the, 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 the other book uh, in it, uh, but uh, uh, Chris suggested, and it was an excellent suggestion to divide it in two books. So the first one does the investigation about mm -hmm. a real UFO. But because uh, it was more uh, practical exercises and more for a young uh, audience. And the other one w w would be the general book that is They Are Here, 
mm -hmm. uh, compelling evidence of extraterrestrial ships presence on, on Earth. Uh, that is the, the second one. We decided to write uh, these two books. It took us some time, but uh, finally we did it. Um, the last part, uh, the third part of the book is related with the Hasenbolt that we decided to include something else. Um, and we found the Hasenbolt uh, photographs very fascinating. Chris especially was really fascinated about that and he thought that probably in one of his visions, he thought that probably he will be writing something about that. So we decided to, to do it. So he was, it was the third part. Uh, the first part uh, that is a uh, wedding cage UFO is actually based on geometry. I mean, even it has yes. something about photography, but it's uh, actually it's geometry. Just looking at the reflections of the spheres and looking at the different angles of the wedding cage UFOs, uh, comparison with the uh, nearby trees, things like that. Uh, it has a, one component of photography, another one of geometry. The pendulum UFO, that is the second part of the book, they are here, that book, mm -hmm. is related with the pendulum UFO. It's uh, the second investigation of the pendulum UFO. When we did the first investigation, we were looking at the evidence that we have on hand. I mean, it was a uh, a video, but was not the complete video. But recently, uh, less than six months, maybe a year ago, we received a full version of that video. And we noticed uh, some different uh, aspects in that uh, video. For example, instead of the two jumps, uh, we find, found an, an extra jump, the third mm -hmm. one, that the beam ship just jumped and stopped abruptly. And also we notice other aspects like the flip of the UFO. Uh, the flip is that it's just turned uh, around five degrees in less than one tenth of a second. It's very quickly. And, and also what we call the pulses. Pulses is very mysterious uh, bright lines that you see always crossing the UFO image and some specific times when, for example, when the flip occurs, you see one pulse. It's like something is activated inside the ship and it's just sending some kind of pulse that is just imprint uh, bright lines and dark lines all together in a very mysterious way. Even if the UFO is in a different position, in a higher elevation, we found another pulse. Uh, probably there are more there. And every time you look at that video, you see more and more details. Um, right now, I think the second investigation is, is, is very good and has a lot of new details. And the third part is the Hasenbolt, is the, that Billy was in a hill close to Fischental town, uh, 300 meters higher than Fischental. In a very uh, in a in a hill that was difficult for him to reach, and he was taking a lots of photographs and two videos. It was a fascinating demonstration done uh, by the Pleiadians. Uh, so that uh, basically the book. I'm not sure if Chris would like to add something else about that. I, I would just say that um, you know, the other book um, actually came out of the original one. You know, they are here is the book we were actually working on and, and intending. Mm -hmm. um, but it went through many, many uh, re-editions you know, before we finished it. And um, the second book which came out, it was actually just a collection of things in the appendix at, at the end. You know, and it was so long 
Um, that's when I suggested to uh, Francisco that uh, we we could and should actually make a different book of all of that, you know, because people aren't going to look at a long appendix like that. It's kind of wasted material, you know. And um, I said, you know, he basically put all the, the bits and pieces in there, and I said, I'll just write it up into a new book for us and um, use it as a kind of um, supplementary text, really, for young scientists. You know, that was the... Um, idea behind it. I mean, the usefulness, I think, of that book um, is that um, it's, it's a good practical work yeah, for very young students, maybe at high school even, or first year in college or something, mm -hmm. you know, where they can just begin to practice and work on things, getting used to working in a practical testing manner. Yeah. Um, and when those experiments are there, which will can uh, get people interested, I think, in the scientific or analytical process, you know, how you look at something and analyze it. You know. It's nothing super scientific, it's just a basic introduction. You know. um, but in terms of uh, release material, I think it's, it's important. You know, there's important findings there. And um, so that's how it worked. You know, we decided to put that all into one book of, I think it's 11 experiments. Uh, Eleven practical experiments, which is, which is also a fairly useful number for a semester at college. Yeah. Um, I don't envisage it being used anytime soon as a college text, but I think perhaps a hundred or two hundred years from now, there might be more interest in it. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about that, but that's possible. And and what I was thinking as you were saying that is, you know, this takes people from belief, just believing to actually testing and using scientific um, methods to, uh, because, you know, there's all these skeptics out there who try to debunk these photos. So I think, and I've read their, their you know, uh, these different skeptics supposed analyzing of the beam ships and they're ridiculous. Yeah. And I yeah. think this book really sh shows that, brings that to light. Yeah, and I think that the main point here, Carol, I think you, you noticed that, uh, you know, in, we are in a new age, uh, the new age, we are here in not in the belief age, we are in the do it by yourself, just test by yourself. Yes. In the past, uh, mm -hmm. there were very uh, important uh, investigators, and you were looking at the the investigators themselves. So you were looking at them, oh, it's a serious laboratory, it's a serious investigator, so I can trust him. So we were in the trust uh, part of the knowledge. Uh, but right now we need to, uh, we can know by ourselves. So we are in the, instead of uh, trusting, we are in the knowledge uh, age. So we have to, to test it here. I, I think this is the most powerful part in these books is yes. uh, that uh, new investigators are each, each one of us. So you don't have to trust mm -hmm. anybody. Uh, just do it by yourself with the computer technology. And it's, it's great just to find in, uh, a lot of nice uh, clues uh, hiding in the photos and videos. And probably there's more and more. But everybody can just look at that, uh, a lot of information that is from Billy Mayer. And we can start finding things. For example, that beautiful photograph of the wedding cave for a night that it was there for many years. But when you enhance the brightness, you see that there is a pole behind that ship. 
-hmm. And you see there is a red uh, plasma around that. So you start seeing a lot of details. So uh, I think the evidence is like that. It's there to be discovered. So we are in the new age of knowledge. So everybody can be uh, an investigator. Uh, skeptics, uh, okay, because they, they are expect expecting somebody just to do, uh, convince them yes. on something that they, they can find it true by themselves. So there are some kind of lazy people. I mean, if they can take some time and look at the evidence and just check by themselves, they can have their own opinion instead of expecting somebody telling them. So uh, this this is a new issue. This is the main point here. Yeah, yes. I think that's important. Yes, ahead, I think that Chris. the book here, um, you know, they're here especially. Um, I think it's a good evidence of how to investigate something. You know, I mean, people shouldn't really need this. I mean, they're, you know, the university, you learn how to investigate something anyway, whatever you are working on, um, especially if you get to your postgraduate level. You know, you have to do your own research. You have to ask your own questions and be objective and find the answers yeah. yourself. And uh, you can test it practically, um, which um, Francisco is very good at and which the first book goes into. Um, or you can test it more just uh, analytically. You don't need to uh, get any materials, you know, which is more the They Are Here book. You, know, you don't need materials really to look at this. There are a few aspects in there where you can do that if you want to. Um, but it has enough detail that you can just follow it anyway um, and see whether any mistakes are made or not. You know, and there were, you know, we did make mistakes along the way. You know, we had... You know, the first draft of the book wasn't right, of course, you know. Um, it was, was it Hemingway who said uh, the first draft of anything is uh, rubbish, you know? Yeah. <laughs> one reason, I had a big question about one of the most, the nicest photograph of the energy ships, in a sense. Yeah. Um, didn't appear to be interacting with the environment. And some of the others did, you know. Uh -huh. um, if the light is really there, it's got to interact with the environment. You know, there's no way out of that, which yes. suggests that someone's put that in there. Well, how you put that in there is another very interesting question. You know, and, and this is something that skeptics never look at. Well, how do you actually do this? And these are very interesting questions to look at. Yes, they are. You know, um, because you've got to be a real pro to do that. And Billy Meyer certainly didn't do it. He doesn't have the knowledge of how to do that. <laughs> he doesn't have the equipment or the knowledge or the know-how. Yeah. Um, yes. So somebody did it somewhere, somehow. But I mean, how how can you know, you know who that is? You know. Um, so that to me then became a very difficult area of what do you actually know and what do you don't know. It, it, you know, it, it's a lot easier when you've got actually actual objects like physical UFOs. You can you can chart those better in a photograph. Something which is just light. You can't, you know, you haven't got a physical object there. Yes. How do you tell how far away it is, you know, um, or whether it was just put in there? So I think Francisco was very, um, did a lot of research there. He's, I think he was um, better at finding some of these things which were genuine, where some of the lights did show light up in the environment, yeah. you know. Um, so there's something which is real there as well, you know. I tend... I kind of wonder whether there's a mixture of the two, you know, just to confuse everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And this is this is very common. I mean, you see, Carl, uh, for some reason, some pictures uh, of Billy Mayer are a mixture of uh, fakes and real photographs. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this is uh, the case with the uh, wedding cake UFOs. Is the latest uh, photograph that Billy took. Probably at this moment, he was more careful on who was developing his uh, roles and yeah. doing all the works. But the energy chips clearly shows uh, photographs that are, are fake and others that are real. Uh, just imagine somebody tried to uh, forger in the photos. Uh, what they do? Uh, they, they receive a, a role taken from Billy. So they replace some of them and they leave others uh, as they are. Uh, not replacing all of them because Billy immediately will notice it. So when Billy received the, uh, the the copy, the paper copies of the photographs, he see some of them that he remembers perfectly and they are the good ones. But the bad ones, the, the forgeries are among them. Uh, that's, for example, I, I, I think is that my personal opinion about the Asket Nera photos. Mm -hmm. You see there are three photographs. First of all, these photos are blurry. They are not in well focus. And that's very, very clear that it really is using his camera, his Olympus camera that was stuck in the infinity. So he cannot focus anybody closer than three meters. Uh, so it was some kind of blurry because of that. I think this was uh, authentic photos. But the, the people that took those photos, yet they keep one of them, I think was the original one, and they replayed the other ones. You see there are the photos 109, 110, and 111. The one in the middle, the 110, uh, shows a lady that looks older than the lady in the other two photographs. Uh, the photographs uh, that are fake, you see there are some background with uh, Greek columns, and they're clearly the fake ones. Uh, and the one in the, in the middle of them, I mean, the one that looks uh, real, shows a lady that has um, uh, the face is completely sy symmetrical. Mm -hmm. If you do an analysis, just joining each pupil at their eyes and compare with the middle line of their face, it's completely sym symmetrical. And you see Michelle de la Fave, that this was the uh, model, uh, his, her face is not symmetrical. She has one eye uh, in a higher position than the other one. And that's nice for, for her, but her, her face is not symmetrical as right. as. And also the photo uh, that I'm saying is authentic, has a very mysterious uh, uh, item that Billy cannot explain. Oh, I didn't receive a good explanation. Is that when you see Nera, Nera is close to her in that photograph, the mm -hmm. one. And Nera has black hair. But the model, the model that uh, the other model, not Michel de la Pave, the other model has brown hair. So it's completely different color. And if you do an analysis enhancing, enhancing the brightness, you see the, the negative was cut to hide Nera face from the negative. So somebody just uh, look at that photo and notice that maybe Nera was not uh, very similar in that photo to the model, just cut that part of the negative and just uh, make a copy of that. So for me, 
that photograph shows the real ASCET, the 1110. The other one is the model, uh, Michel de la Fave. I've been doing some research on that, and this is my conclusion. And you see, this is very common in all the pictures about the Apollo Soyuz. You see some photographs that are clearly taken from the NASA uh, files, and but the other ones you cannot explain uh, where they come from. So it's a mixture of good photograph and bad photograph, and the energy chip is like that. So we decided not to include it at this time of this book. Maybe we will be doing some um, paper later about a second investigation. We are not sure about that, but I have found some photos that cannot be explained uh, that because the energy chip that's supposed to be uh, a, a double exposure is just interacting with the clouds up there and it's not the moon because the moon is not uh, in a ellipsoid shape and we cannot explain that shape in the position that it is in the sky of uh, Switzerland because the moon for example in Switzerland never moves up and down always moves horizontally or in diagonal direction. So, but the shape of the photograph that we see on the energy ships are vertically displayed. I mean, if it's the moon and it's moving for some reason, it's not like that. So there are mysterious photographs there. So we need to maybe look at that again at some point of time, but we decided not to do it in this book. I see. Well, uh, there's so much in this book. I, I, you know, I'm not someone who's um, one to measure. Uh, I, I did more just an analysis of my own, as you guys were mentioning before, back when I was looking at the case in the beginning. But I found this book really interesting. I, I, I wasn't sure how dry I would think it was, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it's very good. And I hope, uh, I hope people uh, will buy this book because I think... Um, I have a, my youngest son is, is kind of skeptical about this case. He's 24. And of course I don't push this stuff on him. He just knows that, you know, we, um, that we study it and that we are interested in it and um, that we're, you know, passive members, but he saw this book sitting there. And I said, if you really want to, you know, cause he was kind of teasing me about it. And I said, if you really want to look into whether this is real or not, you might want to read this book. His eyes got kind of wide when he <laughs> when he saw the cover. So who knows? He may pick it up and read it. But I think it this is going to get a whole new generation of of people, uh, young people interested in the case, I suspect, because you, you do have not only um, helped them to learn to investigate uh, things for themselves, uh, but that you cover that your own investigation so thoroughly in here. So that's uh and and I also noticed in the beginning of the book you mentioned something about not weaponizing this book. I wanted to bring that up. Mm. Um, I think that was Dyson's comment. Yeah. Yes, that, yes. <clears throat> yeah. Um that's that was kind of interesting because um you know, there's been many of us, I didn't realize that, that uh, I guess that Florina had come out and said to stop debating the, the skeptics, which I had come to my conclu that conclusion myself, because it's, it's, a, it's a fruitless endeavor. 
<laughs> it is. Yeah, I, I had come to the same conclusion myself. You know, it, you, you just go round and round in in a labyrinth, going nowhere. You, you know, yes. and the questions are just never end. You answer questions, and there are more and more questions. Yeah, because all they want to do is throw up questions. You know, I I do, and and um, you can't convince them. They need to figure this out on their own. Right. And yeah. what an energy drain this is <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to debate these people endlessly. And so, um, you know, I was I was saying at one point to Christian Frenner, we just need to ignore them. And let them just do in their own juices, you know, and and but I think books like this are very helpful because you put everything together in one place. Well, if they'll read it, yeah. yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, or they oh, look through the telescope. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, well, yes. I think you know the those people who really want to know, and maybe they're kind of a, uh, you know, trying to figure out if it's true or not. Isn't that the isn't that the thing though? The it's the people who really want the truth that are going to read the book. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah. Th those who who don't <clears throat> really want the truth, as you point out in this book there are people yeah. who just don't want the truth as christian said once a, a a ufo could land on their toe and they would still deny its existence <laughs> so, yeah. well i had yeah, a, i had a student here in, in japan once i was this is before my university there's a private student he was he had his own engineering little engineering business and um he said to me, oh, there's this chapter in this book we were looking at in this English conversation text. It was, it was on UFOs, you know, just coincidentally. And, uh, and one of the questions in the book was asked the student, you know, do you believe in UFOs? You know? So I asked him, like, do you believe in UFOs? And he said, um, I, I, I've seen a UFO, but, but I don't believe in them. <laughs> yeah, well, that sums it up perfectly, you know. <laughs> so he don't believe in himself. <laughs> Yeah, and Carol, uh, something that I think is very important in the book is that we are not only uh, showing that they're here. I mean, if yes. you look at the evidence, it's very obvious that they're here. Yes. These spaceships are real. Uh, you see it for many, many uh, points of view. You always find that conclusion. It's no way that Billy can... Uh, it's not a, a toy, it's not a little model. There are big objects, there are here, of yes. course. But the other conclusion, and maybe it's our hypothesis, that we're not only demonstrating that they're here, we're also telling why we didn't, we didn't know that before. Because we have not been prepared. And they, they be, just uh, seen as so many skeptics, skeptical people about that, that's part of the process. We are in a transformation process. I yes. think that it is did it on purpose. They uh, they are not showing their spaceships uh, on in front of everybody. Remember the story that I told you about the lieutenant? He was getting crazy because he yes. saw a UFO. Imagine a lot of people just watching UFOs on the sky. Uh, how be crazy, maybe right now half of the humanity is already crazy, but you will find all the humanity be crazy because of that. So they know that they can go to a planet and they cannot show themselves suddenly. So everybody will be looking at them and get scared knowing that they are here. So this is a transformation process. And the way they did it is that they put the evidence in a way that looks fake. 
And so it's a escape door for people that don't trust of that. And they're not prepared to understand that. So it's, it's good for them just to escape uh, on that door uh, by looking at a pendulum UFO, for example, and say, oh, this is in a court. Uh, they don't want to know any more about that. And that's okay. So leave them. Uh, but other people that look at that in detail and say, and say, wait a minute, okay, that UFO is moving that tree. And that tree looks a big one. It's close to that house. So how that little toy can move a tree that is uh, 300 meters away? So it looks like a real object. So the people that are really interested on look at that in detail, and that means the people that are prepared to understand that can look at that uh, and, and see that. I think that this is a transformation process we are getting through. Mm -hmm. And we are part of that transformation at the context the controversy and the controversy that is uh, right now and having a skeptic is part of the process. So it's just mm -hmm. a matter of time. So we are putting there what we found. We are not trying to convince anybody. If somebody is ready to accept that, that's okay. If somebody said, no, this is fake, that's okay as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I get what you're saying. And I agree from my own experience. Um, if people real, like I said, if people really want to know, they're going to seek this information out. They're going to read books like this. They're going to look at the contact notes and, and the, the prophecies and predictions, like Chris, you were saying you're so interested in yeah. and, and analyze and, and vet that information. And yeah. so the rest will just look at it from the surface and make fun of it and be, or be afraid of it. And, but it is a slow process. And I think that's what a lot of the, I think maybe the uh, Figu people, especially living in a world of instant gratification that we live in now, uh, I think the realization that this is a slow process, that we, it's going to take patience and time and hundreds of years before, you know, the mass of humanity <laughs> recognizes this isn't just some novelty uh case out there to entertain us yeah and I, I think too that there will be a gradual increasing too you know i don't um i mean depending on what types of disasters happen in the future if they're going yeah. to happen you know and that could set us back a bit but i mean even if that happens i think after that you're going to have a gradual steady increase in interest you know interesting for me here is um Two of my very best friends here, Japanese friends, um, both have young boys. They're, um, I mean, one has just gone into university, I think, and uh, the other one is probably uh, junior high school. And um, both of them are, are very interested in UFOs. And um, so I'm going to give them a copy of the book, you know, and I've arranged to to meet them, you know, with their parents and uh, give them a copy and uh, see how they get on with it. You know, I'm sure they'll find it very interesting. You know, I mean, there are young people that are interested and want to look into these things and they want, and they want the truth. You know, they want to know what is going on with all of this, you know, um, because it is a bit of a mystery because it's the, the exact proof has been left out, you know, for, for everybody. So it creates a question and a mystery, you know, and with that, people want to get to the bottom of it, especially when you know that there is something there, you know, which is yes. obvious in this case. You know. 
Well, it's, it's, I think, you know, as you guys point out in the book, and it's been pointed out over and over again, that these photographs were taken before the kind of manipulation we can do now was possible. Right. Yes. I mean, all you could do, all yeah. you could do back then was was double exposures, montage, yes. or false perspective. You know. Yeah, but those and, are easily um, discovered. Yeah, I mean, they're easily to easy to track. Especially anybody yeah. can do that today on the computer. You, you know. Yes. Um, I mean, one of the um, photos in there. Um, let's see if I can. It is just photo number eight four four, which is the WC UFO in front of the uh, big tree with a dark shadow cast over it. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I mean, early on, people were saying, oh, that's just a lot of, he just painted that in there, you know. <laughs> well, of course, today, I mean, this is a ludicrous suggestion today. You can go in there and you can see all the, fur, the big fur spines, you know, and leaves and everything. Um, so we, you know, as Francisco has been saying for a long time, you know, with the, technology we all have today we can all easily do our own research to yes come to understand so much about these these pictures enough anyway you know yes some of them there are questionable things but there's enough there which is genuine um to make a question and to come to a conclusion also yes that's correct you only need one one uh, white crow to know that white crows are possible. Yeah? Right. Yeah, they, they don't all have to be. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, you know, with the number of people, including, I finally saw a UFO myself six months, coincidentally, after I'd been looking in the sky for them, but I was never sure at night if that, unlike you, Francisco, I didn't know what a sat, you know, the difference between a satellite or... <laughs> You know, I go, oh, no, that's a plane. You know, I was always trying to see if I could see a UFO and I never really knew. And then one day my husband and I and my son were driving home from we were out in a rural area by Greeley, Colorado. This was six months after I found the case and I was really investigating it, um, spending a lot of my time on it. And my husband said to me, what is that? And we I look up and there's a silver, bright silver disc in the sky i mean it was just mm. blue sky plain as day uh you know i just the, my impression now is just that uh, how the sun was glinting off of it it was so mm. shiny and and then we passed under a tree and it was gone just instantly mm. one minute it was there one minute it, it was and i said to my husband i said if if you hadn't seen that also i would have um, doubted myself later that I actually saw that because it just disappeared completely in, in just a matter of seconds. And yeah, my, so. yeah, and my son saw it too, the one that's kind of skeptical, and he doesn't remember. <laughs> when I asked, isn't yeah. that funny how that is? You know, he he does not remember seeing that. Maybe he's and, not really interested in UFOs. No, I don't think yeah. he really is. You know, if you're not, you don't have that kind of general interest. Now, I always kind of did, you know. Yeah, sort of. Um, and I've always yeah. had that interest in space. So, you know, if, if you notice something a bit unusual, you remember it. But if you don't have that interest, you wouldn't remember it. Right. Yes, yeah, so yeah. he doesn't. But we both yeah. do. And uh, I thought that was interesting. It, like you, Francisco, I almost felt like it was put on display for me. Like, here we are. 
yes, it's real. <laughs> that, pop, <laughs> that, that thought came into my head. I thought, would they do that? I don't know. But I was, uh, you know, at that time, really <laughs> analyzing the case and trying to and deciding whether, you know, just kept reading and researching and looking at the films and the photos and the contact notes and everything and the, you know, the spiritual teaching and deciding and it was looking very genuine to me. And then I saw that and I thought that was interesting. So. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. about yeah. Jason. Jason didn't remember anything. No. In that. <clears throat> that this is very common. As in some cases, there's a group of people. Uh, maybe one of them see it, but other people don't see it. Uh, you see in Billy Mayer what we have found, and he explained it that very well in one of the interviews uh, with the Japanese reporter mm -hmm. that they use a clocking device that they open a window. Uh, my wife have a very interesting experience in Bogota, in the capital city, in the middle of uh, thousands of people. She was in a, a bus, uh, in, 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 she was uh, very sad that day, but suddenly she saw a UFO, a big uh, flying disc in top of a building. And she went out and she saw it for several minutes and nobody around was uh, looking at that. Nobody just saw what she saw. Right. But, um, but that, that is because they, for some reason, they uh, show themselves to some people and maybe not to the somebody else that is close to them mm -hmm. because they are not really uh, interested or maybe they are not ready to accept that. Or It's just for one person sometimes. And you see, for example, the Choka Asran uh, uh, story that Fobol uh, was uh, telling that uh, she was explaining how some people in the Achoka uh, Ashram was looking at UFOs, but others couldn't see them. Yeah. So in some cases, uh, for some reason, they do that. Uh, maybe they're analyzing us. Maybe they have some sensors in their chips, and they know who is ready just to see it without uh, compromising his health. So they show themselves to only that person that is ready to see them. That could be an explanation. Yeah, I thought that same thing, actually. Yeah, we felt the same. Oh, when we saw this pulsating golden uh, UFO thing over our heads, we felt the same. You know, it was as though it was for, it was right over our heads. We don't know how high because you couldn't really see the, yes. the size of the object. You know, it's very, it very bright, though. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't a pin's spot or anything. Um but it seemed when you all four of us saw it, you know, and um, yeah. my friend and I, I mean, we have a definite interest in UFOs. The other two, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I didn't, I haven't seen them since. I don't know how they came to terms with it. Really. I don't think they really talked about it when we went away. They weren't talking about it at all, but they, they said, yeah, I saw that, you know, it's yeah. as though they kind of didn't really want to talk about it. You know? <laughs> so oh, interesting. Maybe, maybe they weren't kind of ready for it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you both for. Um, I can't believe no one else has ever interviewed you guys. <laughs> I, I was shocked. Well, we we were busy. We were busy working. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Thank you for the invitation, oh, Carl. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah, it's been. Uh, very gracious. It's a very nice conversation. Yes. Thank you so much. And um, so look for this uh, to be uh, published uh, on the 14th of August. 
it's a Friday on the Friday afternoon, and I, you'll get links. Uh, when All I right. Put it up. Okay. But, I, but thank you so much, both of you, for agreeing to okay. do this. And um, you're very welcome. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you, Carol. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye, Chris. bye Francisco. <laughs> bye. Nice meeting you. <laughs> nice <laughs> meeting you. <laughs> yeah. Bye. 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 I'm so glad I could facilitate that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye. 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 <laughs>